Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And today, making his triumphant 23rd appearance on the show from New York City, <laughs> it is my pal and the supremely gifted musician, Mr. Rob Pruce. Rob, what do you have to say for yourself? Well, is this number 23 or is this number 24? I can't remember now because it just feels like... It feels Every like time it, we do it, it's like the first time again. And, oh, sweet talker. It's amazing. <laughs> well, it uh, it feels like 23 in a good way. It's very familiar. And late. <laughs> it definitely does. No, it's cool, though. I mean, we've, we've done a lot of fun stuff. We did that Halloween episode. We, uh, we've done all kinds of things. Yep, we've been we've been through it all. Now we did one. Was it? It was only the one when you were actually down here, right? That was the Halloween one. Yes, the Halloween one was um, in a studio on what street was That's that right. in New York City? It was on Seventy Second Street. Yeah, Seventy Second. Yeah, that was cool. And you played. Uh, it was Halloween. You played some stuff on the piano. That's right. Yeah. Oh, those were the days. Those and now the- we've been. Now we're trapped inside our homes. I know. But we're surviving. So how's it going in New York City for you during COVID? It's going okay. I mean, it's definitely weird. Like, you know, I live in Queens, so I'm not right in the city all the time anyways. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I haven't really been in the city, I've been in a few times, like I've driven in and it's so weird to like be in the areas that I'm used to and like normally, you know, just crammed with people. And it really is just weirdly empty. Like other than the people that are just living in the areas, there's nothing really going on. It really, it's very strange. Wow. I I just can't imagine that having been to New York city. Yeah, no, I know. But then like in our neighborhood, which is somewhat more suburban location, it doesn't feel that different except for the fact that that a lot of stores are closed up and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But but like the neighborhoods, like you look outside and you kind of could pretend that it's a normal day, even though it's still not really right. Yeah. You know, it's it's like that here in the suburbs in that if you looked at the window, it doesn't necessarily look like we're in the middle of a pandemic, but um yeah, I, I just I couldn't imagine walking the streets of New York City right now in these times with like right. it'd be like a like no. a ghost town. It's just so surreal. Yeah, and the weird it, that's what's weird is that you know that there's really no visitors. Like like when you when you see the people on the streets, you think, well, these are people that just live here because tourists have no reason to come to the city now because <laughs> there's nothing to do. Yeah. Right. So basically, who you're seeing are the residents of the city. Yeah. And there's still a lot of those as well. I mean, that's the thing. There's still so many people, right? Mm-hmm. But it's weird to see hotels and things and just think, oh, it's all just quite, kind of closed up right now. You know, I was just reminded of, of something David Lee Roth used to do when he was with Van Halen and, and what they was, would do when they were on tour. He would bring his bike with him. And after, yeah. the, after the show was over and after all the frivolity was done, he would get on his bike and drive around the city at like three in the morning just to kind of have a look at the city, you know, from the perspective of just kind of seeing the architecture and that sort of thing without having the citizens of the city influence his perception of it. Right. Yeah. Wow. He made a point of doing that in That's cool. pretty much every city that they toured in. That's really neat. And I mean, and it's interesting because you think of rock and rollers on the road and you think you don't really know exactly where you are, but mm. you, you're just kind of doing the same thing because you pull up to the venue or whatever, especially if you're on a tour bus and sleeping and stuff and and it can become very monotonous in that way which is weird because people always think of traveling to be such a glamorous thing but when we were traveling in, with honeymoon suite one time in europe mm-hmm. um 
I made a point of like getting up early and trying to get out and see cities and things as well. And just, I thought this is an opportunity to, to see places that I may never get to again. So I got to try to get this perspective of what it's actually like in these places. And it was kind of amazing, but I can imagine for David Lee Roth, like he did it so much too, right? Oh yeah. But that's cool that you did that because I, I feel like I would do the same thing. I would want to take advantage. And if you're in, you know, Singapore or Portugal, whatever it is, like you want to kind of, you know, make the best of it. So, but I, for sure. I, I, I'm at the same time. I mean, if you're doing this for decades, I could see how you'd be maybe a little bit jaded. But I think of a guy like Elton John too. Like I, I just finished listening to his the memoir of his his autobiography, mm-hmm. and he talks about that too. Like the fact that he spent his whole life on the road. Like he didn't really know a life beyond doing what he does, which is is being a performer mm-hmm. for 50 years, pr- practically 50 years. That's what he did, you know, year in and year out. He performed so many shows every year. Yeah. And I remember at some point in the nineties, he would have these huge wardrobes brought with him and stuff. And mm-hmm. it's crazy. Like you would think that you hit a point of success where you could be like, I'm going to kick back now and relax. But you realize he loves performing like to be, to hit 72 or 73. Now he's been on his final tours and who knows after after this all now if he's even going to resume again right yeah because it was it was going to be his farewells anyways but you think how much of his life he dedicated to just performing for people because that's really he loved to do it so much yeah that's incredible really if you think about it that way the stones used to yeah, do that too crazy. You know? they, they they would spend obviously a lot of time on the road especially later on when they established themselves in their later years and what they would do was rent out massive suites in hotels and they would have someone come yeah. in beforehand and put their you know pictures on the wall um that they had brought from wow. home and they would have massive wardrobes and even the furniture so it was almost like crazy <laughs> which is really excessive but it, but it's, it's kind of funny that they actually did that so it was like being home every day i guess those are the things that help you cope when you're out there Right. And then and then conversely, here we are stuck at home and everybody's trying to figure out ways to <laughs> get out to give of themselves while they're in their living rooms or whatever. And it's that's that feels so strange, too, because it, it feels like we're connected, but we're not connected at the same time. Like there's so many more live stream events happening now and people trying to find ways to do the thing that they do. But part of what makes the magic of creating music and listening to music and experiencing music has always been that connection, like like face to face almost. Right. You know what's almost ironic about that, Rob? I almost feel like I, I see performers more now on because there there's there's so much it's it's a crowded space online for, you know, FB live yeah. and stuff like that, right? I don't know, before like I just I feel like I'm seeing uh artists more now <laughs> during this pandemic than I had, you know, previous to it. It's really true. And it's and it's interesting because I feel like as time goes on and as things however however the world resolves what needs to be resolved in this with this whole thing Mm -hmm. it it's gonna shift the balance in what we share online and what we get to do in real life the fact that somebody's gonna go live online it's it's almost like having live tv which existed in the 1950s i guess in the same way right that where we began in the world of of programming in that way was television was like beamed into your home and it was a live show and like whatever happens happens and you make the best of it and then once we got to the point of being able to record it people had more opportunities to do editing and do effects and stuff. Yeah. But that initial connection was live as it's happening. And I think that's the thing that people are starting to remember. Oh, this is pretty cool. 
yeah. you know, that you're you're tuned in, even though you're you're in somebody's living room or whatever. That's not the most exciting sort of venue to have it happening in, but it's better than nothing. It's like watching the Ed Sullivan show all over again, crowding around <laughs> right. the TV. Ed from his li- Ed from his living room, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right, so you have set up a lovely little Spotify playlist here of your most recent songs for the show, and you called it aptly No Sleep Till May 20, which I thought was pretty funny. That's the (laughs) today's date. No Sleep Till Today. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) So as usual, it's uh, varied in terms of um, genre and style, which I love. It's fantastic. There's some very interesting picks on here. So... (laughs) If you are ready, let's kick it off. Yes. There's there's a slight theme to it all, which you would never think there's a theme. Okay. But the only theme because I think I think when you first when we talked about maybe doing another episode, you had said, you know, just to see what I, I've been listening to in this period of isolation or whatever. So yeah. I mean, I'm always listening to a lot of music anyways. And I think that what struck me as a as an idea for the songs that I wanted to put on the list were people who've passed away. Because ah. we've had a lot of weirdly coincidental, not coincidental, but you know, people are always people are always passing away. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, with with COVID nineteen, that's also hit people who maybe maybe have left us sooner than we would have expected or would have liked them to have left us. Mm-hmm. So there's a few on the list that um, I thought of for that reason, Excellent. or in, or connected to it for for that reason. So okay, this is very interesting. Yeah. So now. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the first song that you have is by Queen, and there, there's an interesting story behind this. I was the, the song is the Fairy Feller's Masterstroke from Queen Two. The story goes, it's pretty interesting. I don't know if you want. Do you, do you want to tell the story? I'm kind of kind of jumping all over it here. No, you tell me the story. No, I mean you tell me your the story that you know because I think I know things about it as well. But I'd like to hear it from another perspective. So the the thing that I've always thought was really cool about this is Freddie Mercury was very inspired by this painting that was done yeah. by this guy named Richard Dad. He was like an English guy from I think yep. I think it was like the 1850s, and he painted this painting called the Fairy Feller's Masterstroke from an asylum that he was committed to because he had killed yeah. his dad. And back then, they called these asylums uh, lunatic asylums. So he was in this lunatic yep. asylum, and he painted this painting. And Freddie Mercury was fascinated with this. And uh, for Queen, too, he, he wrote this song. And I think the song is basically about the characters in the painting. Totally, yep. Yeah. I didn't know that when I was a kid. because So Queen, Two. I think Queen, Two was the second Queen album that I owned when I was like 10 years old. Because at first, of course, was A Night at the Opera. Minion Rhapsody on the radio and I was like what is this so A Night at the Opera was my first and I think I went back to Zeller's like days later <laughs> to get whatever else was in the Queen bin and I think I could only get one album and I was attracted to Queen 2 just because I thought the cover looked kind of weird because it was all black on the front and I think it was all white on the back and so that was like my 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 first step towards getting into the the back catalog of Queen I always loved the whole album it's, it's actually still I think my favorite Queen album but I didn't really know about the, how literally he had painted until until many years later, mm-hmm. probably not until the 90s even, because I was going backwards and listening to the music of my childhood, and I re, and you know everybody was saying about how he was basically narrating the picture, and I thought that's amazing. Then when I finally actually saw the painting, it's it kind of blows you away how you can make the connections to it all. Yeah, for sure. Which I love. Yeah. Um. So so that slight connection 
which brought me back to Queen 2, was because the singer, he was the singer for this band called The Pretty Things. His name was Phil May. Mm -hmm. He passed away last week. I never really knew the band The Pretty Things very well, except they would come up on some psychedelic playlists that I have made in some compilation albums that I had. And I always knew their name when people referred to like, like 60s bands, you know? Yeah. And there's so many bands from that era that I hear and I think, oh my God, I love this music. And I never really know who they are, but I always want to know more. So I was like reading all this stuff about Phil May and the Pretty Things. And I, there was a couple of songs that I listened to that totally reminded me of Queen so much. Uh-huh. And there was a song that they had called I See You. And it, I thought there's no way that Freddie Mercury was not like totally inspired by this music because it just sounds like something that Freddie would have done. And this was from 1968. I mean, Freddie was in, was definitely in the world of music already, but it was. But to me, some of what Freddie does does and had, had done on that record is hearkening back to the pretty things. Mm, interesting observation. I'll, you know what I'll do? I'll stick this. I'll drop this song into the Spotify playlist because then you can kind of hear the influence on it. And yeah. it's not the same style of song. Like Fairy Feller is a really cool song because it's sort of it's got all the harpsichord and stuff, right? Like it's very medieval sounding in mm-hmm. a way. But this pretty thing song that made me think of it is more of like another ballad on on side two of Queen 2. It's it, But it definitely has that kind of feeling to it. You'll get it. Awesome. Love it. <laughs> Next, you have uh, a very interesting selection. This is the first time that this individual makes it onto the show. It's Lionel Richie. And the song is, <laughs> is You Are. Come on. How much do you love that song? Really? Come on now. You have to go back and you have to take your mind back to 1982 or 83. You know, it's super catchy, I'll tell you. I don't mind. Isn't it? It, like it is. It's ridiculous though, because like I hadn't listened to it in so long. And one of my isolation guilty pleasures has been listening to or replays of Casey Kasem's American Top 40 oh, song, yeah. like the countdowns. Yeah. And so on, on iHeartRadio, they've got the, the AT40 station and it's nothing but playlists of like his old episodes, you know? Mm. And so this, this came up at some point just a few days ago, I think. And it was, it was counting down the hits from – it was either late 82 or early 83. Yeah. And this song came on. I mean, of course, I know this song because we all – I mean, you couldn't get away from Lionel Richie in that way, right? No. He was all over the radio. Yeah. But something about hearing it in, in this environment in, in the last week or so, I was really tuned into the bass, like the synth bass and stuff. And I thought, this is so like purely 80s, but it's fantastic. Like the musicianship on it is ridiculous because there's a guy – I can't – I didn't even bother to look and see who the keyboard player is. <laughs> but the synth bass on it is so amazing. Like it's just like like he's he's playing – so many different kind of riffs and you know just cool stuff and i love that kind of stuff and i never really wanted to do it but as i got older i was like amazed at trying to learn it and learn how it was done but i thought man it's just a really fun song like like music in that era was just very very happy music you know and it's it makes you happy to hear it yeah no i totally agree with you but the other thing that kind of blew me away listening listening to it as well was the fact that richard marks did a lot of the background vocals on that song too. No, he, I didn't in know the that. early eighties. Yeah. When he was, when he was first in LA, he, he was doing a lot of sessions, like getting called as a session singer. And I yeah. always, I had heard that he sang background vocals for Lionel Richie on all night long. Oh. He's in the background in like all the party, the party scenes, the party vocals. Yeah. But I was listening to, to you are, and I, as clear as day, I thought, Oh, I can totally hear Richard Marks in there as well. So I went out to the Wikipedia page for the song and it says, yes, he was, he was singing on it. So, wow. I love those. Those are the kind of like little, little behind the scenes discoveries I always like making about music as well. You know. Well, I I love that about you. I love that you dig into stuff and listen to you know songs track by track and try to figure out riffs and listen for you know bass lines and stuff like that. 
it's it's fun and it well and for me like i guess because i'm hearing things differently now and i guess that's part of the thing i really appreciate about doing the kinds of the different kinds of musical stuff that i've done like like working in theater and getting to know the sound of orchestrations and stuff mm-hmm. that i go back to music i loved when i was a kid and i it's like new music to me in a way because i'm hearing new things I, I've started to have a theory about American Top 40, the radio show as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's possible that they put their music through some kind of an equalizer because in those days it was pretty much formatted for AM radio. And I think that AM radio always processed music in a different way. And I, I love the sound of AM radios. Like that's one of my favorite things in my life is to hear songs from my childhood coming through an AM radio because that's the way I knew the songs, you know? Yeah, yeah. But I've been noticing that I'm hearing things that I've never noticed before in, in some pop songs that I know really well. And I started thinking maybe it's got something to do with the equalization that they're filtering the music through. But I love it. Whatever it is, I think it's really cool. Because wow. it's like like I'm hearing – yeah, stuff is definitely jumping out in weird ways to me. Or it's me. I'm just going – I'm like maybe just losing my mind from being stuck at home <laughs> for two months. It's, it's probably a combination of both. That you know? could be it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. All right, so next you've got, uh, this is a good pick. This is Thomas Dolby and Screen Kiss. Flat Earth came out in uh, 1984, and that was his follow-up album to the album where he had uh, She Blinded Me With Science, of course, was his, was the huge hit. Yep. And then the next album that came out, the Flat, the Flat Earth, was had the single from the album was called Hyperactive. Oh, I remember. The video was insane. Yeah, it was crazy. He had a cool, crazy video for it and stuff. But um, Screen Kiss... Is was the song that I just picked uh, off the album. The whole album is a favorite of mine, like from start to finish. It's one of those things that I just could listen to straight through because it's so beautiful. The production is fantastic. But Thomas's bass player Matthew Seligman passed away from COVID uh, oh. in April, uh, middle of April. Hmm. And he was he was sixty four. He was a fantastic musician. He used to play with uh, this guy named Bruce Woolley as well in the 80s. And he did a lot of great session work. He played with David Bowie at Live Aid. Huh. Um, but I think I first knew his name from Thomas's first first two albums. Uh, the first album and then Flat Earth as well. Mm-hmm. But but Screen Kiss has really cool bass work. So I thought this is my this is a, a song to listen to and remember Matthew Seligman through Thomas Dolby. Awesome. That's cool. Manfred Mann is next and Pretty Flamingo. Have we ever talked about this song before? No, but so what I was thinking when I I saw this on your list, so like Springsteen, obviously, Blinded by the Light, Manfred Mann wrote that, Springsteen covered it, and I think that Springsteen covered Pretty Flamingo too. Is that right? He absolutely did. Yeah. So here's the Pretty Flamingo story is that my friend, this friend of mine from New York City, Mark Barkin, wrote that song, Pretty Flamingo. Wow. And Mark passed away last week at the age of 85. Oh, and he uh, was in the hospital. He he was he had a, had an illness. He didn't pass away from COVID, but uh, he passed away unfortunately from being in a hospital and he had a fall and, and stuff. Mm. But I first met him six months after I moved to New York. In so I met him in early two thousand and two. Mm-hmm. We might have talked about him at some point in one of our twenty three other conversations <laughs> because <laughs> because Mark also wrote the theme for the Banana Splits TV show. Oh, then we did. And that was the first melody I ever played on a piano when I was five years old. Yeah. So when I when I actually met Mark and I realized that he had written that music and I said, oh, my God, you wrote the first thing I ever played on a piano. It was the weirdest thing to me in that way, you know. That's um, cool. So he began as a songwriter in the fifth in the late 50s and into the 60s. He was like like a 
a classic songwriter who worked at this place in New York called the Brill Building, yeah, which yeah. is where right. That's like when you hear the stories of all the songwriters like uh, Carol King, yeah. and everybody writing writing the hits. It was like the hit factory, right? That's so right. Mark was a songwriter at the Brill Building, and he had songs uh, covered by so many people. But Pretty Flamingo was his first actual number one. Man for Man had it as a number one in England in 1966, and then Springsteen did it many times as a, as a, like an encore kind of a song. Mm-hmm. Rod Stewart recorded it on his album, a night on the town. That's right. In 76, in yeah. th- which was the same album that had tonight's the night. Yeah. Yeah. And it was covered by like so many people. When you go on, if you go on to Spotify and type in pretty flamingo, you see how many people come up with a song. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. But Mark was a good friend of mine and we had, we wrote some songs together in the early two thousands as well. I've never released them. Like I've never done anything with them. And I've, I've always been intending to like make a band camp page or something and, and share them. There's it's like maybe a half a dozen songs that we wrote together. Yeah. And we, I did some, some pretty good demos of some of them as well. So they, that may see the light of day. You should, but I put, I know I really should, but I put pretty flamingo on our list today just because I, I thought that was his song. That was like, like the, the one song, although he had songs from Elvis Presley recorded some of his songs as well. Oh. In a couple of Elvis films, he even had his songs done. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. I'll, I'll share. A, I have a Spotify playlist that I made of Mark's songs as well, like of all the different recordings that that have been done of his music over the years. Mm, yeah, send me the link. I'd love to see that. Crazy. That's cool. I will. And for your last song, my friend, it is Craftwork, Metropolis from Man Machine. Yes, and in auf Deutsch, it's Dimensch Maschine. <laughs> They used to do their albums in German and English. And I think when I was a kid, I had their album. I think first I had, the first copy I had was in English, The Man Machine. Mm-hmm. And then my cousin in Germany sent me a German copy, and it was The Men- Dementia Machina. And uh-huh. so they would take – it was the coolest thing ever because they would just re-record all the vocals in German or in English. Wow. I didn't know they did that. Oh, yeah. But Florian Schneider, who was one of the founders of Kraftwerk, he passed away last week. Mm. And he was – Oh my god, I don't want to screw up his age now, but he was in his late seventies, I think. But Kraftwerk was a huge influence on me in my life, and that's one of the bands, and and their music never really leaves my mind. When I when I think of music that I love and that I'm inspired by, and that that I just could never get enough of, they're always at the top of my list. Mm-hmm. Well, they're in my top, they're in my top twenty, anyways. Wow. A lot of bands in the top twenty, but I think Kraftwerk, you know, just as, as a beginning of electronic music kind of crossing into the pop music world they did it so well and they inspired and influenced so many people oh yeah and i you know i just never get tired of that music like hip-hop they've influenced to a degree yeah for sure for sure they did an album uh called trans europe express and that was the one that people say was like one of the originators of like like when they did it when was it africa bambata did planet rock Mm -hmm. in the early 80s I, at first, I thought that they had recreated or they had um, they had used an actual recording of Kraftwerk, but it turns out that they actually went in the studio and recreated it. So they they didn't just take the record and just play the album and loop it. They really recreated the sound of the drum machine. Yeah. But it was clearly inspired by Kraftwerk. So yeah, they they set a mark in the sound of electronic music, and it's just it's resonated through today. You know. Yeah, definitely. Well, how, now tell me what, how have you been, how have your listening habits been these days in these weeks? Good. Um, you know, people, yeah. especially yesterday, people sent me songs, which I, I was very um, humbled by. I thought that was really cool um, because people know that, you know, I, I like discovering new music. Um, Stephen Stanley, his drummer, 
got me onto someone named Titur. I don't know if you know that name. Is it European? Oh, I've heard of. Yeah. Yes. He has a song called Louis Louis. Uh-huh. That that is just like it's, okay. it's not the Louis Louis, but like it's it's an acoustic. He's a singer songwriter, very simple, yeah, but just super unique, and it's just got that X factor that I, I just I've been playing it like over and over. It's fantastic. So when I think of that name Titur, there's for some reason I, I always feel like it reminds me of Bjork, but it's not Bjork. Mm. But it's there's something about the voice. I remember reading somewhere about is it is it one guy or is it a band? It's it's one guy. It's the one guy. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Really cool. And kind of, you know, very distantly related to that old stuff from like Laurel Canyon, singer songwriter stuff, the association, uh, nice. Neil, Neil Young, CSNY, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. Just really getting into that lately. Never get tired of that sound either. No, it's so rich and full and simple yet. Yeah. Like it's just, it's yeah. so great. I just love it. That's that's something that I love, like what I was saying about that band, The Pretty Things, from the late 60s as well. Mm-hmm. There's something about the recording techniques that led, like, in that period where it was so experimental, but it was really raw at the same time because you had to capture and commit what you were making, like what you were recording. Yeah, definitely. I, that's you a know, great way of saying that. Been, I love that. Well, I've been working, I've been doing some work with this country singer from Ottawa. His name is Drake Jensen. Oh. And he just released a single last week of a thing that we did in the last year. Mm-hmm. But I've been mixing a new song he's going to release. And I've been like refining the vocals and the background vocals and all these elements in the, in the mix. But I keep going back to, to listen to recordings for inspiration to like, to like see like production ideas, you know, and yeah. like how, how, how can I place things in a mix? And I listened to a song. I think it was like a Doobie Brothers, like something from an early Doobie Brothers, Doobie Brothers record. Okay. And it struck me that we have all this technology now, like we can go in and you can grab the mill, a millisecond of something and you can isolate it. You can turn it up or down and you can retune it and you can do stuff to it. Oh, yeah. But in those days, you had to say, we're going to go in the studio. We're going to make up these harmonies. We're going to hit record. We, we might do a couple takes, but we're not going to do any fancy editing because there's no fancy editing to be yeah. done. Yeah. You're a cutting, you know? ta- you're a cutting so, tape, man. You really are. So it makes me even more impressed and amazed to hear the choices that people make and the choices that they were able to make and live with, given the limitations of the of, of the technology. And I, I try to live with those limitations sometimes now, too. Like, even though I could go in and, and manipulate everything, mm-hmm. I try to to remember what it would feel like to not have all those choices. I think that's so great that you do that because there, there's a, a, it's hard to do though. Yeah. But there's a veracity in that and there's a, it just, it's so approachable. You know what I mean? I just, I, I don't know. I go on about this stuff too much, but like, I, I love that. I think that's great that you do that. Oh, I do too. Well, and I mean, I learned that from working with producers as well, where for me as a keyboard player and as like a synth player, it's so easy to try 20 different ideas and say, well, we'll just blend blend them all together. And like it's and it's almost too easy for me to do that. Whereas like when I was in Honeymoon Suite, our producer would say to me, don't like we don't want to spend all these tracks for the synthesizers. Just make one track and make it count. You know, and and it kind of it, and it, sometimes it would like be a little upsetting to me because I thought, but I'm so used to like doing the like the new wave synth thing where you can layer and layer and layer, right? Yeah, yeah. And he was like, no, man, like this is Ted Templeman who made Van Halen records, right? And he's like, I don't want to have time to mix five synth tracks. Just give me like maybe two. That is so right? funny. But I learned to love that because I learned uh, like it sort of taught me that you can say a lot with with a lot less, but you just kind of have to just make it count and sort of just sit in the mix. Yeah. 
and it's so you like now you can go back and forth you have you have both options available but simpler is often the better way i think yeah you know speaking of uh, ted templeman his uh, publisher just sent me his new book he's got a new book out called yep. uh some uh, just something i can't remember the name of it but um about producing and about his time with uh van halen and did we talk, Does he really? did you and I talk about that oh, no. no we didn't because somebody told me that he also worked with honeymoon suite yeah yeah so he's got a new book yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll let you know when i get it it's in the mail right now oh no he worked he produced well the first thing that we did with him was we did the the title song for lethal weapon for the film lethal weapon yeah because at that time he was like the head of A and R at Warner Brothers, mm-hmm. and so they asked us to do this to record the song. They wanted Ted to produce it, and so that was like our trial working relationship. So we recorded that one song, and then like the so that was in the beginning of '87, and then that summer we went back to LA for like four months and recorded "Racing After Midnight" together. Wow, that's cool. Is he a cool guy? Yeah, he was really cool. But I've always like, you know, he would tell us stories about working with the Doobie Brothers and working with Van Halen mm-hmm. and working with Van Morrison. But yeah. I would I've always thought it would be great to, to like hear his story, like even more so if he's got a book coming out. That's amazing. Yeah, it, I read a, a little excerpt of it and it, it sounds really, really good. Oh, cool. So, yeah, I'll let you know when I get it. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Maybe you can do a talk with him. I'm going to try. The, the publisher sent me the that book, so I'm going to see if I can. I, he didn't write the book. He wrote it with a guy named Greg Renoff. So I think okay. I think Greg is down, but I don't know about Ted. I'll, I'll reach out and see if we can get him. That would be cool. That would be very cool. Maybe I'll just drop your name and say, well, you know, Rob Proust said that. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I, have some, I have some good old pictures of us all together in the studio that I've. One day I'm going to put a book together, like a photo book, and I'm going to put all these pictures because i've got like great recording stuff especially from our time with ted yeah. when michael mcdonald was with us in the studio as well like it was such a great time oh man you should you've got so much stuff oh yeah you gotta get it out there yeah yeah i know it's crazy definitely ted was the funniest though because he so we had a, there was a song on the album see now we're going we're diverging too much <laughs> um but there was there was one song on the album that that we could not finish like we had a great bed track like we had the music was happening yeah and we were having the hardest time coming up with like the melody and the lyrics for the song. And Ted was like, oh, let me give it to Michael McDonald. And so Michael McDonald ended up co-writing the song with us. Oh, wow. And he sang, and he sang background harmonies. Speaking of a, of a guy coming in to sing harmonies, he's singing on one of the songs on the album as well. Oh. Because he wrote the melody and the lyrics for the song. But the day that he came in the studio to show us what he was working on, it was so cool and weird. Because we were in the control room mm-hmm. playing the track. And he was sitting right beside me and like sort of singing along, singing us his ideas. Wow. How and cool it was, and it was just weird because it was Michael McDonald, like just singing in my ear. No just kidding. sounded like him, you know. It was oh. bizarre, yeah. <laughs> you got a lot of stuff to get out there, man. You have a book in you. You should, I know. You should, you should do a book of your own. I have so many, so many ideas for how to do it, and and I keep on saying it's been an endless thing, like like trying to come with come up with like an ultimate way to do it. You know, like there's photos I want to incorporate and and music and I don't know all the stories, but it'll it'll get there. Good. It should. If if I can help you with that in any way, then let me know. All right, man. Thank you so much. As usual, I enjoyed our chat. I enjoyed it as usual as well. And (laughs) I'm going to add some music into that Spotify playlist as well. Yeah, do it. Throw some stuff in there. I'll make, make that a thing that anybody could listen to. Okay. And I'll promote it too. Cool. Awesome. Thanks, brother. You're welcome, Brent. Stay safe in, um, in New York City during these times. One of these days, we'll see each other in real life again. We will. 
I look forward to that day. It'll come, don't worry. No, me too. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Soon enough. All right, my man. Thank you so much. Talk to you. All right. I'll talk to you later. All right. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. Rob Cruz. Till next time, folks. Take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.